Thank you so much for tuning in. My name is Mark Grayshap. This is another Bottle Down on Co-op Radio, KOOP 91.7 FM and KOOP.org. Today, I am very excited to welcome to the Co-op Studios Jasmine Hirsch, who is... Wow, her winery is one of the uh, icons of California Pinot Noir. She's the general manager. Um, her father is David Hirsch. Uh, these are heavy-hitting Pinots. They're some of my absolute favorite Pinot Noirs in California. So we're going to be talking over the next uh, 40 to 45 minutes uh, with Jasmine. Welcome to Austin, and welcome to Co-op Studios. Thank you, Mark. Happy to be here. Yeah, well, uh, you know, there's so much to talk about with what's happening with California Pinot Noir, what's happening with the um, Fort Ross Seaview AVA, and you guys um, you guys are at the center of it all. Can you just tell our listeners out there where the winery is in California and kind of in the context of uh, the greater northern Appalachians of California? Yeah, so, um, so Hirsch Vineyards is located on uh, the western Sonoma coast, so the far, the most northwesterly part of Sonoma County. If you leave San Francisco and go over the Golden Gate Bridge and just head north and west, uh, it's off Highway 1. So anyone that's traveled the Pacific Coast Highway, you've gotten a feel for our landscape, which is ocean, cliffs, coastal ridges, redwood trees, uh, and a lot of fog. Yeah. Um, so the, the 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 viticultural area is Fort Ross Seaview, as you mentioned, which is entirely enclosed within the viticultural area Sonoma Coast. So yeah, that's where we are. So th- so we can say that it's a sub AVA, uh, uh, and and American viticulture yeah. area is the is what that AVA stands for. Technically, Fort Ross Seaview is its own AVA, but it is entirely enclosed within the Sonoma Coast. Right. So we can use either AVA on our labels. Um, we still use Sonoma Coast on our wine labels. On the back, we write Fort Ross Seaview. The reason we do that is we believe the more specific you can get about where a wine comes from, the better it is for the consumer, the right, more knowledge right. the drinker has about where the wine comes from. But at the same time, a lot of people have never heard of Fort Ross Seaview. Yeah. So we stick with Sonoma Coast on the front. So you want to be, um, you want to be friendly to the, to the public and, and give them what they understand. But then also, I mean, what I've always thought about you guys and Hirsch Vineyards is that it's more important, your family vineyards and, and, and almost your name as, a, as opposed to, you know, the, uh, a more specific AVA. Is, is that kind of has been, has that been the family uh, philosophy? I, you know, my father was the first person to plant premium grapevines out there right. um, before there was even a Sonoma Coast AVA, right. uh, let alone Fort Ross Seaview. He believes in the AVA of Fort Ross Seaview. He helped write the application together with a geologist named Shabram, um, and also, of course, with the um, participation of our community and the other growers and winemakers in the area. But uh, it took almost 10 years to get the Fort Ross Seaview AVA approved. And I think in that time, my father became a little disillusioned with the process. With the process, yeah. But I also, you know, to the substance of what you were saying, um, there is something meaningful about our area, and I believe there is a thread that runs through the vineyards and the wineries of Fort Ross Seaview. It's a very small AVA, um, and it's very specific in how it's designed. It's it's defined both by its geographic boundary, but also by elevation. So only vineyards over 920 feet are included in the can use the designation. Right. So it's if you picture it, it's it's just these amazing high elevation ridgetop vineyards right next to the ocean. Um, so I believe I believe the AVA has meaning, um, but the other side of it is you know in California we don't have the 
picking pressure that they do in a place like, for example, Burgundy, where um, the time between ripeness and rain can be really short. So you don't, at least traditionally it has, I mean, global warming and changes in viticulture are changing that, but um, there hasn't been as big of a range in fruit ripeness in Burgundy's as there has been in California. So our neighbors within the same AVA as us can make wines that are, you know, they some they do make wines that are much, much uh, pushing, pushing sugar ripeness, pushing fruit ripeness, much beyond what we do. Um, and we've, we've chosen to make a different style of wine. So within this small AVA, while there are things that tie together, tie it together right. geologically and climatically, there's great diversity of styles still. Yeah. What you just said has has so much substance, actually, and we're going to kind of dig into it for folks listening out there, um, because th- there's a few things that I think that I find extremely interesting, where the gap between the industry and the consuming public, you know, might kind of fall fall through. I want you to tell us, you know, you talked about these uh, difference in picking and and allowing ripeness to be pushed. Um, what does that? So, in your opinion, you know, if somebody's picking earlier, or maybe your neighbor is picking way later or, or vice versa, can you just uh, tell us what difference that actually makes in the bottle and the final wine? And then maybe what philosophy your family has always taken when it, when it, when it comes to that sort of style? So when a winemaker is deciding when to pick the grapes and, you know, picking is, when to pick is a winemaking decision. Right. It's arguably the most important winemaking decision right. because when you pick the grapes will have a profound effect on how the wine tastes. So as the grapes are ripening on the vine, and anybody that has uh, a fruit tree appreciates this, as the fruit is ripening, grapes, peaches, apples, whatever, you'll notice that the fruit is getting sweeter, the sugar's increasing, and at the same time, the acidity's dropping. Uh, If you pick a green apple before it's ready, it's so high acid, there's a lot of what's actually called malic acid, and the same thing with grapes. So what winemakers are looking for is this intersection between acidity and sugar, And then, of course, overarching all of that is flavors. So we want to see a great accumulation of flavors, um, and you want to have some kind of, you know, balance in in your own mind as the winemaker as to what is an appropriate sugar level and what's an appropriate uh, acid level. And all of those will affect the ultimate flavor of the wine. You could say the style of the wine. My father's goal has always been to make wines of place. This is coming from the idea of terroir, which is a French idea that place, which is geography, geology, history, culture, climate, all of these things together can actually be tasted in a wine. So this is the concept of terroir. And my father has always strived in his farming and his winemaking to produce. So what we've found, and our style has actually evolved, um, we've changed the way we approach this question of ripeness um, as a family and as a winery. What we've seen over the years is that picking the grapes with a sugar, lower acid, maybe picking them late where you get a lot of sugar, lower acid, maybe more impressive bombastic flavors. Um, but what we see when you pick at that level is that you lose terroir oh. and you ultimately you lose complexity. Of, and of course, those two things are related. So we, we feel that style should be for us at Hirsch in service to intention, and our intention is to produce wines of place. So we pick on, quote-unquote, the early side right, right, right. Um, to preserve that specificity in the wines. Yeah. 
Um, wonderful. So, and um, so picking on the earlier side um, and, and having that opportunity to make that decision as opposed to, you know, kind of drawing it back to Burgundy, whereas oftentimes the weather is almost making that decision for you, right? You know, you mentioned rains might be coming. We've got to pick now uh, or else, you know, we're going to lose the crop, right? Was the, the decision to when to pick, you know, with you growing up with your um, and, and, and your father was, was making these decisions, was it like kind of a, a hectic, uh, a lot of um, intensity and, you know, a lot of kind of mulling around or was it just he knew what he was doing? and 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 it was it was what what was going to happen so um my father is my father's a farmer he's not a winemaker um we started we've been farming grapes out there now for over 35 years my father has been um we started to make our own wines only in 2002 and we've always had a winemaker um you know not not a consultant a full-time uh person who's committed to hirsch and committed to making the wines at hirsch and um, to my father's credit, he has mostly deferred to the winemaker on picking decisions. But, you know, when we got started, my father was much more, well, he was more concerned to be involved in all the picking decisions. And certainly we've argued at times about when to pick. <laughs> I started working. And now you as yeah. general manager, you know, you, you have your, you know, you have your, your opinions as well, of course. Well, yes. And, you know, we have a new winemaker and who started with us this year who's amazing. And, yeah. you know, I definitely, you know, he's, he makes the pick calls, but I have questions sometimes about the pick calls <laughs> and we talk. And our, you know, our vineyard manager, Averado Robledo has been with us for over 25 years. Uh, there's no one that knows the vineyard better than him except my father. And, you know, he has his opinions about picking decisions that we all do um and and so you know i mean the the real shift for us in style came between 2008 and 2009 08 was the first vintage i worked for my family it was a very hot vintage and the wines um were very ripe and what we saw was that all of the you know we we have a vineyard of about 70 acres and it's divided into 60 farming parcels so very fragmented yeah and 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 so you know we pick all those parcels and make them each into their own wine and in 2008 they all kind of tasted the same and what we realized was the excessive ripeness of the vintage was you know again it created these very impressive flavors but they were all kind of the same um the, the ripeness is a homogenizer and wine is all about difference it's right. all about specificity so in 2009 you know and this was again you can sort of coming back to your question about agreeing on picking decisions i mean i didn't really know anything in 08 i was just learning and working but in 09 i said to my father i was like we have to try picking earlier but we still had disagreements um and um you know there, there's a wonderful expression that um uh, Helmut Donhoff, who's one of the, he's retired now, but one of the greatest winemakers in Germany, said that if God was just, he would give winemakers every vintage twice. So it's very <laughs> tempting to be the Monday, Monday morning quarterback on the picking decisions, but you know you have to make game time decisions. Right, right. And that's also, um, I think that that's one of the big advantages of having a history with a vineyard site. That that yes, you might not have those vintages back to back, but when you have a, a long history with a vineyard. Um, and 35 years is yeah, is an incredible history. You can say, oh, well, this vintage reminded me of, you know, oh, that, that vintage we had that was tricky back at five years. So we're going to kind of change our, 
our, our techniques and making it. Do, do you agree with that? Do, do yes. some vintages like remind you of others? And <laughs> well, not me so much. I, you know, this year I was sort of panicking about certain at certain points during the <laughs> end of the growing season, going into harvest, and our vineyard manager was straight laughing at me. He was like. This has happened before. You need to relax. Like everything's going to be fine. And he was totally right. And I think that if I had been on my own without this incredible, you know, team of people, including our winemaker who's new to the site, but has an incredible depth of experience with Pinot Noir, um, you know, I probably would have done what you do hear people doing, which is, you know, you panic and you say, oh, my God, we have to pick it. Um, And then you've actually picked too early, which is, of course, uh, you know, a risk as well as picking too late. Um, So, yes. So then picking too early, what will that result in flavors in the final wine? Yeah. So, you know, I I realized I didn't fully answer your question. So, you know, riper Pinot Noir is going to be fruitier lower in acid and higher in alcohol. Alcohol, of course, can be manipulated in the final wine. You can de-alkify using various wine technologies. You can add water, um, which lowers the, the alcohol. But um, if you pick the grapes and don't do anything, don't manipulate them in any way, you know, riper wines are higher in alcohol, lower in right, acid, right. And more, more fruit forward. Um, so if you pick too early, you can end up with um, more kind of raw acidity, unresolved tannin so tannin is actually an acid but it's it's what gives wines a lot of their structure um so sometimes when you taste the wine it's very drying in the mouth that that's can be a sign of either picked too early or or the wine's too young um but green flavors are you know something you would worry about but we i think about it a lot in terms of intensity i mean we want to make wines we're not trying to make you know so-called wimpy wines or, or even light wines although i don't think the word light as applied to wines, it, it's become so negative, and I should it shouldn't be. Right. But um, you know, I believe that great Pinot Noir and great Chardonnay, which we also make, has to have depth. It has yeah. to have intensity, but depth, not breadth. I mean, California is so good at making big, fat, broad wines right. all day long. Both Cabernet Sauvignon and Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and, and yeah. everything. I mean, we do not lack for sunshine. We're essentially a Mediterranean climate. Mediterranean climate. Um, and you can just push ripeness and you can make these big fat rich wines and and especially when the wines are young that richness and that um, that ripeness can be a stand-in for the in- for intensity and for depth but the great wines of the old world which we're not trying to imitate but certainly for us as a family and and for me personally are um, you know they're there's something to kind of hold in your mind. The and great, to respect almost? Is, is, yeah, to is respect it? and also to kind of to show you what's what's possible. Right. So for me, the great, I mean, just sticking to Pinot Noir, so the great red burgundies are, they do have intensity, a lot of them, not all yeah. of them, but they do have, you know, power and depth and, and um, this word concentration, which has sort of been co-opted. But, you know, so if you pick too early, you can end up with wines that really are, too light, too thin, um, and and so there, there's you know our previous winemaker Ross Cobb, who makes the Cobb wines, which are just astounding wines. He said you want to be picking when you almost feel like you're picking too early, yeah. but but not too early. Not. You're actually picking at exactly <laughs> the right time according to your parameters. You right. know, wine is very subjective, and winemaking is very subjective. Right. Uh, I'm going to throw in a, a little, you know, personal opinion here because I've always really loved the Pinot Noirs uh, of Hirsch, and uh, to me, 
I, and I like to use this word with, with a lot of wines of real consequence and high quality wines, um, that, you know, you can have a wine that's light or you can have a wine that's heavy, but it's the, it's this aspect of tension that, that is, you know, that the wine is alive and it's, um, and it's, it's, it's alive and it's got energy and it's got tension. And, uh, I think that in some of the best champagnes, uh, there's this incredible tension and, and with Pinot Noir certainly has the ability to do that. Uh, so, so bravo. Uh, if you're just joining us, my name is Mark Rayshep. It's another Bottle Down on Co-op Radio, and we're talking with Jasmine Hirsch, who is general manager of Hirsch Family Vineyards, and um, they have an incredible history uh, planted in 1980 uh, in the Sonoma Coast. Jasmine, can I have you bring us back to the time when your father made the decision to plant, and you know it was out in the middle of nowhere, and it still is kind of out in the middle of nowhere, right? I mean, when you th- and when when folks think out there of Napa Valley, and it's just like winery after winery after winery. Um, it's not quite that way in your neighborhood, right? <laughs> no, no, it's not. Yeah, we really are in the middle of nowhere. We're about four miles from our own mailbox, um, wow. all dirt roads. <laughs> we're off the grid for water. For years, we were off the grid for power, but but now we've connected to the utility, which is great. Um, but um, but yeah, so my father is from the Bronx. He went to Columbia and dropped out um, in his freshman or sophomore year and moved to California. You know, it was the 60s. Right, and yeah. um, and he lived in the Santa Cruz Mountains, which is an incredible wine-growing region, an old wine-growing region that we don't talk about enough, um, just south of San Francisco. Yeah. And he um, he became he he does not come from a wine drinking family, um, but he became very interested in wine. He was actually working in the clothing business, and he would go to France for his work and take the train down to Bone to Burgundy, and taste wine. And then living in the Santa Cruz Mountains, these two things together. Yeah. Um, you know, he's also a nerd, and I think nerds are attracted to Burgundy because it's like a Absolutely, matrix. Yeah. Burgundy is is so complex, um, and he fell in love with Pinot Noir, and so he. Um, separate from that, though, he realized in the 70s that pr- everyone was doing what he was doing, that everyone had moved to California and the state was getting crowded. And he said, you know, I better buy a ranch, a place where I can hear myself think before yeah. it gets to be too expensive. And so he started to look every day in the classified section of the San Francisco Chronicle when there still was a classified section. <laughs> and um, he he found an advertisement for an old sheep ranch and he went up to look at it. And it's remarkable to me that you have this kid from the Bronx that goes up and looks at a thousand acre sheep ranch with one building on it. I'm sorry, two buildings, a sheep shearing barn and a little shack, all dirt roads, 12 volts electricity. And he falls in love with it. And he thinks, oh, this is a great idea. I mean, like, I don't even understand how, you know, how one would come to that conclusion. I mean, I'm so grateful that he did, but I really respect his vision. Um, But he did not buy the property intending to plant grapes. People call him the pioneer of the Sonoma Coast, which I think is ascribes too much intentionality. He fell in love with the land first. He bought it in 78. And he realized pretty quickly that it had been ecologically um, damaged really by by clear cutting, overgrazing, um, foreign grasses being brought in. And he said, you know, I need some kind of activity that is going to generate income for the land in order to restore it to ecological health. Wow. And so he settled on on vines um, at the recommendation of a good friend of his. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so we started planting in 80. Wow. Yeah. Well, the sustainability of a vineyard, when done correctly, is, is, is incredible for the land. Um, thank you so much for sharing that story with us. Um, and, and I just love when wines 
have stories behind them. And uh, so then, so from 80, so planting in 80, and then, you know, through the, the 80s and the 90s, um, so what what was kind of the, the landscape like? I mean, he was selling his his grapes and they, they started to get known in the industry and also there were folks putting Hirsch Vineyards on the label as well. How, how was that evolution? Uh, yeah, going? well, so when my father first started growing grapes, um, you know, when he first planted out there, people told him he was crazy. They right. said, have you noticed yeah. you can see the ocean from the vineyard? I mean, we're two miles as the crow flies. And at that right. time, in 1980, you know, the Russian River was just sort of becoming the kind of Mecca for Pinot Noir and people were still planting in Carneros over in Napa. It was considered radical to plant on the coast. Um, And so no one really cared what he was doing and he was selling the fruit to, you know, to big, you know, kind of big wineries as bulk wine. And then in 1994, he received three phone calls in the space of one month um, from Steve Kistler of Kistler, Ted Lemon of Literai, and Burt Williams of Williams Salyum. And the three of them, they were in a tasting group together. And, and either they had a wine made from our vineyard, because there was a neighboring winery that, that doesn't exist anymore that had made a wine and put my father's name on the label. But Or, or they'd heard about him and they said, we've got to go meet this crazy guy out on the coast. <laughs> so 94 was the first vintage of you know well-known wineries putting his name on the label right, right. and um and that was how people started to to really hear and know about the vineyard was because of the william Selium hirsch and the literary hirsch and there's probably been you know 30 plus wineries that have bought fruit from us and put my father's name on the yeah. label over the years so that's right. been they've been so instrumental the great wines that they made uh, have been so instrumental in spreading the word about our vineyard. Right, so. right. And then the move to uh, make your own wine, I think that this is a natural evolution. We're seeing some of these iconic vineyards that just started out as as farms and, and the folks behind them, farmers, and uh, describe that that transition to making your own wine because then then you've got two things that could you know could uh, could go wrong. I, I don't want to say it that way, but I mean agriculture is a tough business in itself, and then and then the winemaking is a tough business in itself. So I mean, describe that 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 uh, idea to change over. Yeah, you know it's um, it's my father decided to build a winery in order to become a better farmer, yeah. and. Um, to this day, he is somewhat ambivalent about winemaking and winemakers and right. owning okay. a winery. Yeah. Um, but he really, he, for him, it was really that he has this vineyard, 70 acres, 60 parcels, and he was farming. The reason for the fragmentation is besides being next to the ocean, we're, we're practically on top of the San Andreas Fault, mm. which is the name of one of our wines. Um, being so close to the fault, which is a relatively, in, in geologic terms, the fault is very, very recent. The creation of the coast of California is very recent. So you have a complete jumble of soils. Uh, if you sort of imagine it's like making soup and you, you add cream and you still have that swirl. That's what our soils are like. Um, it just has, they haven't had time to homogenize, but instead of two ingredients, we've got, you know, 15. Um, so my father was farming the vineyard in these micro parcels. And he said, well, you know, I want it, I want the feedback when the feedback from farming grapes is the wine. So he said, you know, that we have to finish the process. We have to start making the wine ourselves uh, yeah. and make wine the way we farm. So every single one of those little parcels is made into its own little wine. And that enables us to learn about the vineyard. And I, I really do believe I am the daughter of a farmer, but I am convinced that 
you will never be as great of a grape grower as you could be if you didn't don't also have the winemaking as part of your activities because it's the voice. It's right. like the winemaker is like a translator. If you go to a foreign country and you and you have a, a bilingual uh, friend with you, your experience is going to be, you know, so pure. That's what wine is like. If you have a winemaker that can take the grapes and translate purely into wine, you have a lens into the vineyard yeah. and that will teach you what you're doing wrong because <laughs> right. you're always doing something wrong. It will teach you what you're doing right. It will teach you about, you know, there's parcels of the vineyard that we thought were so-so, you yeah. know, oh, it's okay. But, you know, looking at it from a farming perspective. And then we started to taste the wine. He said, wow, this is actually a really amazing parcel within the vineyard. Right. And so it's really changed our thinking uh, to also have the winery. Yeah. Well, Jasmine, we have to take a short break. And um, if you're just tuning in, we're here with Jasmine Hirsch, uh, general manager of Hirsch Vineyards. And we're talking about all things Sonoma Coast and wine and uh, and winemaking as translation. I love that idea. And um, so stay tuned. We'll be right back with Jasmine. Okay, we're back. Uh, my name is Mark Rayshep. It's another Bottle Down Radio on Co-op Radio. And uh, follow along at koop.org. Uh, and also, we're, you know, we're uh, talking with Jasmine Hirsch. Do follow along on hirschvineyards.com. Uh, and you can get a lot of information on uh, Jasmine's winery and the family winery. And uh, a lot on the wines and the vintages. And we're going to start digging into that in this segment. So thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, Jasmine, I'd like to start off just by... Um, you painting the picture as to how you got involved with the winery. So many, I know that, uh, so, you know, so many heirs to wineries that kind of wind off going off and doing their own thing for a while and then realizing, oh, you know what, I really do want to be involved. And then they come back after like a short career in finance or something. Did you know from all along that you wanted to be in involved in the winery? That's sort of embarrassingly <laughs> spot on. Um, I, you know, I... When I was growing up, we had the vineyard, but not the winery. So I grew up with my father being in the vineyards and, you know, making us help. And I just, of course, absolutely hated having to right, do, right. do any of that. Did um, you taste a lot of wine as a kid? Did he make sure that you yeah, were kind of tasting as you were... Um more, it was more about dining. My parents, both of both of my parents were avid travelers and avid fine diners. So we, my sister and I did, you know, we got taken to restaurants at a very young age and, you know, tasting wine, but never, not like in a, in a programmatic way. Right, right. So. Like he wasn't uh, geeking out about collecting and taking out old, old wines or something like that. I mean, it was always around, little, okay. but he wasn't, I don't think my father's ever been interested in indoctrinating us in, in anything. Okay. Uh, well, that's not actually totally true, but not, but not in wine, but it was always around and it was something that was, um, I think from, I think in regards to f wine, more what. I inherited from my father as a child, absorbed from my father was how to how to enjoy food and wine, how to enjoy restaurants, how to treat people. Yeah. Um, my father is very much um, he's very down to earth, and he loves meeting people from all walks of life. And he was always so charming and personable in restaurants, and um, I, I think that that had a I absorbed some of that. Was there any sort of, um, did he have any ideas of more of like a, a poetic sense of wine? I mean, it seems like he was, he's, he's, he, he thought a lot about that sort of thing. You should read our back labels. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. My father, I mean, he's a college dropout, but passionate 
reader and I remember when I was in high school he had gotten very into James Joyce and he was actually writing a dictionary of all of the words that James oh, Joyce had cool. invented <laughs> and um and so he's you know he's an autodidact and very into not so much poetry I wouldn't say but myths and legends and um old stories um I mean, we always had the most amazing children's books like old stories from from india and and um and, and places like that um cool so yeah well, maybe a philosophy of life would be yeah, better right so. so so then so so bring us back to to your trajectory yeah so my you know i i so we grew up we grew up in the vineyard but we didn't my father didn't start the winery until i was already in college and so we didn't grow up in the wine business per se we grew up on the ranch that's mm -hmm. you know it's so funny when we were kids we called it the ranch and now we call it the vineyard i'm trying to bring back calling it the ranch because yeah. i like that um so i it's funny i was going through some papers of my father's the other day and i found a letter that he had written me um and it was sent to me during my senior year of college and it was a job offer i should have taken it because he offered me much more <laughs> money than he did when i finally did go work from seven years later but he was trying to get me to come work for him from the time that i was you know getting ready to graduate yeah. from college and i had no interest i have to be honest i had no interest specifically in working for my father right my father is an amazing person but he's a hard ass uh, he was now he's much sweeter but um i also wanted to live abroad i i studied japanese in college and i yeah. spent my junior year in japan oh wonderful yeah and i wanted to go i wanted to go abroad again and so i actually moved to europe um, a few months after I finished college and lived in Europe for five years. And then, yes, then I did move home and worked in finance in, for a couple <laughs> years. And absolutely, I don't want to say I hated it. I learned a lot, but I sure. just was like, this corporate world is not for me. This finance world's not for me. And so I was complaining to a friend. Um, his name's Bernie Sun. And he was the corporate wine director for Jean-Georges for many years. Yeah. Amazing, amazing sommelier and wine professional. And Bernie said, well, you know, quit complaining. What do you actually want to do? And I said, well, you know, Bernie, I love food and wine. And he said, go work for your dad. Yeah. I said, Bernie, I can't go work for my dad. And he's like, go work for your dad. <laughs> and he sort of, he said, you know, your father's doing amazing things. You should go and continue what he's doing. And, you know, I think as a, as a child, you know, I was in my 20s then, but you're still a child in respect of your parents in many ways. And I, I never, I mean, I knew he was, you know, respected and, and I knew, you know, people talked about him and in the wine world in New York where I was living at the time. But, I, you know, it, I, ha I have to confess that I, I think I needed that kind of that third party affirmation yeah, in a way. Yeah. So, you know, and I was also unhappy in my job and I think I lacked imagination. So I said, OK, fine, I'll go work for my dad for a couple of years and see what happens. <laughs> so I moved home and I started working for him in 08 and um, and I got hooked yeah. both on the wine and the viticulture, but also on the business and on working with my father, who's, you know, such an amazing and compelling person. And it, we have now worked together for eight years and we've, it's been very difficult at points, but I think we've worked really, we've both worked really, really hard to figure out how to make it work. Yeah. And it's been incredibly rewarding. Wow. Um, so. Yeah. I mean, your, your relationship had to change and evolve, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and that's an yeah, amazing thing. You know, yeah. we can't all say that about, uh, you know, our family dynamics and, um, well, and I don't think it's always necessary. I mean, I, I think that there was something unconsciously that I, I wanted to work out with my dad in some way, not to get like too, you know, <laughs> Freudian about it. But um, I've always been very close with my father and always, you know, 
um, identified with him and um you know so i it was i don't know it was there was something compelling about it there's also something very compelling he's he's an entrepreneur he's a visionary um i'm more conservative than he is um and it's very inspiring to work with somebody that has a vision like that and to get to inherit it in a way and also to his credit he's made space for me to bring my own vision for the vineyard and the place into the picture and, and certainly in regards to the winery yeah do you do you feel that pressure i mean because i've i've um you know i've i've heard a lot of second third fourth generation uh folks of very notable wineries uh and gaia gaia comes to mind i mean you know her father was second generation i mean she felt you know and i can she didn't say it outright, but she feels like this incredible pressure to like be a, a visionary herself and to and to keep on pushing the boundaries of experimentation and this and that. Do you, do you feel that pressure, or or is it just something that um, you just want to do? You just want to push push the bar. I don't feel the pressure to be a visionary. I think my father did that hard work. He was the pioneer, and I'm very lucky that I get to inherit that legacy. And I don't mean inherit in the financial sense, although my siblings and I will inherit the vineyard, but I mean more that I get to build on what he started. And I actually do not see our property and our wines as being so much about innovation as they are about what my father says is our job, which is to get up, go to work every day and pay attention. It's not super glamorous. It's not super wild and innovative which doesn't mean that we don't try new things but you know there's um there's an incredible uh, so i I think what i do fear is not um you know is is business failure or not being able to continue it not not you know honoring what he wants to be done with the property what his vision is i feel that pressure um but, you know, there was an amazing story in the New York Times a few years ago that Eric Asimov, the wine critic for the Times, wrote. He, about two wineries, um, one of which is Rene Angel, and Rene Angel, um, the owner, passed away with no heirs or retired. I'm not sure which. Um, so all of the Angel that's in the world, that's it. That's there it, won't yep. be any more. And um, there's a very, there's a, a sweetness and a sadness to that and a poignancy. And it just, the article just left me feeling like tremendous weight, like, oh my God, that can't be us. We have to, and there's so many wineries that don't make it to the next generation, right. um, for various reasons. And it's not about continuing for continuing sake. It's that there's still so much work to be done. We've been there for 35 years. That's not even we're the oldest vineyard out there. That's not even considered Vilvine or old vines in France quite yet. I mean, there's so much to be done. And so I just, um, how do yeah. you, yeah. I, that, so, I mean, you know, it's, I think a lot of folks out there just in the wine loving community, it's almost hard to, uh, grasp that, and I and it's something. It's a recurring theme on this show that I try and I try to highlight. You know the longevity of the the wine world and what you're having in your bottle. You know when you take a step back and you think about it a little bit, it's just so incredible. And 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 that's the the that's one of the the cruxes of this show. But um, you how do you see the vineyard evolving? I mean, you know, so that's a big thing of of you know. The vineyard could never be what it once was. I mean, it's always going in some direction and evolving. And so, uh, 
you know, usually folks say that the quality is just in, in, improving, improving, improving. And that, of course, is, uh, you know, amidst a vintage variation and all of this kind of stuff. How do you see your vineyard evolving? I mean, in just in terms of flavor, in terms of ease, is it is it is the vineyard kind of settling into its, you know, its middle life? <laughs> <laughs> There's so many ways to answer that question. The first thing I would say is what my father says, which is, you know, the vineyard is always changing what, what you said, but, but, and so are we. Yeah. Um, so for me, short term, I need to learn so much more about the vineyard and the farming. I've been very focused on sales and marketing and then on managing. And I, I still will be very focused on those things. Um, but I feel, you know, that I personally just have so much to learn about the vineyard. Um, the vines are getting into this wonderful, you know, middle and older life period, depending on which parcel. The, all of our vines, for the most part now, are 15 to 35 years old, which is a really exciting yeah. place for the vines to be in because it's really around, you know, 12 to 15 years that I think you start to see um, the nature of the vineyard, whether you made good decisions or not, whether you chose a good good place to plant. Um, but we also do have some vineyards that are that are slowly dying from disease. Um, mm. We have some phylloxera uh, in particular. Um, so, for example, we just tore out two acres at the end of the last this last harvest, um, which is really hard. I um, you know to see that land with no vines on it. But um, we are also so you know seeing some parcels that need to be replanted, mm -hmm. which is very hard to give up those old vines. But um, mm, yeah. when the yields get so low and the quality starts to become a bit irregular you've got to replant so i think we'll see that we have to do a lot of replanting there's some new sites that are have never been planted that we're interested in um so yeah i think you know and we one of the greatest um opportunities for improvement at hirsch i think is is between the vineyard and the winery and bringing those two things those two enterprises closer together they really should be one enterprise um and so, you know, bringing, bridging that. What that's, do you mean by that? Well, you know. Just in terms of a business structure? Or well, it, it, th like that the decisions that are made in the vineyard are 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 tied to what the wine tastes like. Uh. Now, it's not always one-to-one -one because often you're making decisions in viticulture that don't just affect this year. They also right. affect the next year or the following years. So sometimes you have to make decisions um, with a longer view than just the current vintage. Um, but our vineyard manager, you know, really in a nutshell, to get our vineyard manager and our our winemaker working as one yeah. and um, for everyone to kind of, you know, it's very difficult. There's so many factors that affect why a wine tastes the way it tastes. And it's very difficult to say, well, if you had done this, it will taste like this. And we farm biodynamically too, so it's a, a very holistic view. It's not a one-to-one -one view. So, and and it's it's not a, it's not a. There's a great there was a great quote that Jean-Marc Rouleau, a winemaker in Burgundy, said. He said, "Great wines or winemaking," he said, "is a thousand little decisions." And yeah. I think by winemaking he meant also viticulture, because sure. it's one word in in France, in French. Um, and it's true. It's so it's about these little decisions that you make every single day, and that's why it's so important to be to be con to be awake, to be awake and to be paying attention. And all those little decisions will add up to the wine. So sometimes it's very difficult to go back and to say. This well, yeah. yeah, you vineyard manager did this, so this happened in the winery, or you winemaker did that, and so it's it's more it's much more 
holistic. Yeah, um, yeah. So. Well, Jasmine, we have to uh, jump into kind of the wines and and what wines you make. And um, but I'm very much enjoying this having here in the co-op studios. And if you're just tuning in, we're with Jasmine Hirsch, who is general manager of her family winery and vineyards, Hirsch Family Vineyards. Um, and you can follow along koop.org and hirschvineyards.com uh, for Jasmine's uh, winery and vineyards. So, so. Um, you're on Sonoma Coast. We've kind of talked about that. Oh, before I want to, before we jump totally into this, I want to. Um, Karen McNeil, a wonderful critic and author of the Wine Bible, she recently came out with an article saying um, people talk about earthiness in wine, but with California Pinot Noir, it's less about earthiness that she more relegates to Burgundy, uh, but it's more about like this salinity and like sea salt. Do you feel like uh, just an overarching characteristic of your? I mean, first of all, do you kind of agree with that? And um, and then since your your winery is your, your vineyard is so close to the sea and and you've got the fog rolling in, do you get that that sort of characteristic of of this like ocean spray sort of thing? I. I mean, with all respect to Karen, I think, and I haven't read the article, but I think yeah. this, that's a, it's a problematic statement. Um, the word earthiness in and of itself points to a certain bias that, you know, oh, French wines are earthy implies that, you know, they've got good earth and it like comes to, or, you know, or in some ways, like some people say, oh, I don't like earthy wine. So you can, I guess it could also be a negative. Um, right, right. I I think also there's a lot of things. So first of all, wines don't taste earthy because there's earth in them. Right. They taste earthy because we perceive something that reminds us of earth in the wines. And that can come from a lot of different things. It can come from the way you make the wine. It can come from the barrels that you use. Um, so it's, you know, it's it's not, you know, it can... I, I, this idea of earthiness or terroir or even, you know, minerality is another very challenging word yeah. people argue about a lot. I think that these, you know, words are, you know, we're talking about wine. It's not, it's not written. Right. It's, it's something that we perceive and uh, filter through our brains and through our personal experience. So it's, it's very, again, it's very subjective, but I, I have to say I don't agree with with her statement, and I've tasted plenty of American wines that are earthy, and I've tasted plenty of European wines that are that have you know saline qualities, and plenty of European wines that are monochromatic, fruity, you know, supermarket wines. Sure. Um, it's not. Um, I think as the world of wine expands, that we will that the the, the the diversity of high quality wines all over the world is just increasing. Right. So, yeah. Cool. Well, let's let's jump into um what 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 you do at the winery. So, I mean, as far as the wines that you make and um Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, right? Yeah. <laughs> is it that simple? That's it. That's <laughs> it. Yeah. Um well, so and Chardonnay's kind of an accident. My father wanted to plant Nebbiolo. He had this beautiful perfect little hill and he was he went to go have lunch with Bert Williams of William Salium. And he said to Bert, this is in the early 90s. He said, you know, oh, I'm going to plant I'm going to plant Nebbiolo. <laughs> and Bert said, you're crazy. Nebbiolo belongs in Piedmont. Right. Plant Chardonnay. We would love to buy Chardonnay grapes from you. They were buying Pinot from us at the time. So my father planted this two and a half acre hill to Chardonnay in 94 at the request of Bert Williams and and Bert and, and Ed, his co-founder of William Salyum. They bought the fruit for a number of years and then Kistler bought the fruit. Both of them made Hirsch designated Chardonnays, tiny quantities. Right. Um, but in 2006, we said, you know, we'd really like to make some Chardonnay at the estate. So we took the vineyard back. We only make one white wine a year. That's it, the Chardonnay. Um, yeah. 
really... So it's your little hill of Cortone. No, you know. <laughs> it looks, I have to confess, it looks nothing like Cortone. It's okay. like it's like a, a, a single hill, you know, with vineyards on all sides. Um, but um, but we can pretend it's the hill yeah, of Cortone. Right, right. So describe it, you know, so so is it, what, what kind of style of Chardonnay is it for, yeah. you know, and, and, and without falling into that, you know, that that just uh, dichotomy, yes or no, you know, like oak, not, you know, j- just uh, it would be great to have you describe your Chardonnay. Well, I love the word that you used earlier, the word tension. Um, yeah. A friend of mine uses the word crunchy to talk about mm. wines, um, which I, I think is correlated with acidity. Um, I sure. think I think our Chardonnay is um, I drank a bottle of it last night. It's got incredible depth but packed into a very narrow frame. So a lot of focus in the wine, a lot of acidity, a lot of what we would call minerality, freshness, yeah. but but with some weight. Mm. So it's like a hybrid, I, I would say, between what one would typically expect from a California Chardonnay and what would one would expect from a French Chardonnay, yeah. kind of melded together. Cool. Um, so yeah, it's a pretty cool wine. And, we make and a, just min, min, minuscule quantities. Yeah, we make. It depends on the vintage because you know that hill. It's so exposed. If we get bad weather in the spring, you know we've made as little as two hundred cases. We've made as many as seven hundred. Um, it's now four acres. It's yeah. it's a little bit bigger than it was. It's three point eight five acres in total. Um, but, Which is uh, still minuscule in a lot it's of minuscule. books. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, we don't make a lot of it, but um, it's a pretty uh, yeah. It's little it's gem. A, I mean, you have to like gem. love yeah. the one white wine you make. You yeah, know? and you know, Chardonnay is such a challenging grape because it's the most widely planted grape in California. Yeah. It's arguably the most abused grape in California. I think of it like a Janice face. You know, the the face that you see on theaters, the smiling face and the sad face in oh, one yeah. because it the. They call it the winemaker's grape, which, you know, means that the winemaker can make it into anything he or she wants. It's a blank slate. Um, But and that's, you know, that's great if you're an industrial winemaker, you know, you want to put your ego on the wine. Um, But it's those same qualities that make it a blank slate for the winemaker that also make it an incredible vehicle to express terroir. Mm -hmm. So it's a blank slate to express the vineyard if the vineyard's interesting and if you make it in such a way that 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 vineyard can be expressed Um, so we aim for the latter although you know we're very specific in the winemaking Um, we do use it is um, vinified and aged entirely in french oak barrels but we use mostly old barrels so Mm -hmm. you don't get that oaky flavor but you still get the benefits of oak aging Excellent. Yeah. We're running a little short on time. We need to uh, talk okay. about the, the, the Pinots, though, that you make, because you make several, right? Yes. Give yeah. us a, just a, a rundown of kind of what, what, what um, you know, how do they span and are they yeah. plot designated? Yeah. So um, so the vineyard, as I mentioned, is all of these different parcels. Uh, we make everything from a, a, a wine from a single parcel called Block 8. Um, and so that's a wine that's just from that little section of the vineyard. It has a unique soil and a unique expression, and, and we bottle it on its own. It's a pretty amazing wine that sings with this very pure voice. At the other end of the spectrum is a wine that we make called San Andreas, and that's our flagship wine. My father named it for the fault. He said the fault defines us, this wine defines us. Right. And that actually has fruit from 30 parcels. Wow. So it's yeah. a, a fr- fruit from all across the Hirsch Vineyard. So it's a very complex blend, but more importantly, it's a wine that expresses the whole of the the vineyard right. and then we have some some pinot noirs in between uh different uh, expressions of the vineyard but the 
We don't buy fruit. Everything's 100% estate. Yeah. Every wine is 100% from the single vineyard of Hirsch. Yeah, so. wow. Um, and then just flavor-wise, do you get, when you dis, when you make the decision to have a separate, you know, bottle, a separate plot, is it because there's a, a little bit more just intensity, there's a little bit more kind of richness to it, and, and is there year to year that those same decisions made? Yeah, I think... Um, I think before you bottle a single vineyard wine or a single block wine, you have to be really sure that it's necessary. Right. And, um, you know, as our winemaker said about block eight, the first year we made it, he said it would be a crime to not bottle this wine on its own. Right. And that was because it really had an expression. There was an expression in the wine. The voice of the wine had something to say that was different from every other part of the vineyard. And it's persistent year after year. So if the vineyard changes, if the way it tastes changes every single year, you know, it should change through the lens of the vintage. But if this one parcel block eight, some years it tasted like block eight, some years it tasted like something completely different. I would say that that's not terroir. Terroir yeah. should be persistent. Um, so, you know, we waited 25 years before we bottled that block on its own wow. so that we were really sure that that was you know, what we needed to do. We made a new wine this year. Um, we just finished bottling 14s or finished the summer bottling 2014s and we made a new wine for the first time. Um, and so again, it was a question of, does this wine need to be it? made? You can't, you can't hold, hold it's, called, it's called the Ration Ridge and Ration is um, the name of Henry Ration, who was a painter of the American West uh, who lived on the property that's now Hirsch. And when mm -hmm. my father bought the property, some of the old timers in our community still called it the ration place. So we named it for him, but it's from a, a little uh, ridge that runs right behind the winery. And the, the wine is on the nose, extremely forward and, um, uh, dare I say a bit uh, say falling out of its blouse, <laughs> you know, sort of like, <laughs> a, you know, a little, a little bit like that kind of wine, right. but on the palate, I mean, it's very appealing on the nose. Um, but on the palate, it's got incredible structure. It's very serious wine. It's a bit right. of a, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's an exciting wine. So, and, and we've been watching that part of the vineyard for a few years and, and thinking, okay, is it really there? What we think is there? Should we bottle it on its own? And finally, in 2014, we made a few hundred cases of it. Awesome. So, yeah. We'll, we'll uh, look to that at hirschvineyards.com. Um, can we uh, can we just talk in, in very briefly in a few minutes, Jasmine, um, about the, the last couple vintages um, that, that you're kind of excited about? Or, you know, what do we have in the market here in Austin? Yeah. So right now, um, the wines that are available from Hirsch are from the 2013 vintage, which is a very fresh and pretty and charming vintage great wines to drink uh to drink now they will age but they're already super expressive and delicious um 2014s will be coming next year okay. they're um I, you know i would i say arguably it's a better vintage than 13 more more With structure more shouldered. yeah more intensity but still really pretty um, and then last year, 2015, we unfortunately we lost about two thirds of our potential crop due to terrible weather in the spring, partially related to the drought that California has been experiencing. So we'll make about one third of the normal quantity. Um, wow. But the wines are they're pretty extraordinary, awesome. very concentrated, very dark. So untypical for us, you know, because there was so little fruit. But um, but very exciting yeah. wines. Yeah. So. 
Well, wonderful. And what's kind of your favorite vintage for, for folks who, who might have Hirsch in their cellars or something, you know, a couple, you know, yeah. a, a I'm loving 07s. Or? 07s and 2010s right now are, okay. I think, both in a really pretty spot. 10 was a lighter vintage. The wines have evolved, you know, a little, a little quicker than the surrounding vintages, than 11 and 12. Um, so you're already starting to get some secondary, like just a touch of secondary, more complexity, more transparency in the wines. Mm-hmm. And 07s are just such an extraordinary yeah, vintage wonderful so, vintage yeah well jasmine hirsch thank you so much for being with here with us at the co-op studios and you've got a dinner at june's uh, on south congress tonight um uh although this is pre-recorded so you won't uh won't be able to to check that out but um thank you again for being here and good luck with with your family's endeavors and and the, the direction that you're going to be bringing the winery and uh yeah good luck on all your travels thank you mark yeah You've been listening to KOOP 91.7 FM and KOOP.org.